and the, the insights that you gleaned from doing additional work. But if you don't know who the author is, should that, as an inductive student, be a hindrance to your uh, work in the book on, on the whole? What do we know about God's word as a, uh, as a record that's been given to us? What do we know about it? It's true. It's in, in, it, uh, do you have any kind of um, scriptures that tell us about how we can trust and rely that what is written is true? There you go. It has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? All scripture is inspired by God, right? And is profitable for, go ahead, Susan. Uh-huh. Very good, Susan. Star for the day. Okay. So because as inductive students, we stand on the premise that God's word is truthful and accurate, that it's completely 100% God's word, and therefore... Um, these kinds of things like an omitted name of an author are not a hindrance to us because in actuality, what does that tell us about the author of this book? He's not trying to draw attention to himself. He's not a major subject, right? It's not about him. Who is it about? It's about his major subject, who is Jesus. Okay, so at this point, what we do know about him is that he is an unnamed person. What did you learn, though, by doing additional research on this? When she told you to go ahead and look and see what more you could find about him, did any of you do research on that? Uh, no, I'm talking about the author himself. Oh, no information? What? <laughs> okay, very good. So let's write that down. He's not personally an eyewitness. Okay. And what verse is that in? 1-1. One, one. Okay. Now, 2? Okay. Sorry. One thing I want you to, get to know about in uh, when we are doing our discussion, I want to have the street address for anything that you give to us in class, okay? So when you give an answer, make sure that you can note to me the script, the, the chapter and the verse in which you f we would find the answer. The purpose for doing that for us on a whole as a classroom is to keep us all on the same page. So that if somebody makes a comment and you can't find it or you don't remember seeing it for yourself personally, and maybe you either have a question about it or maybe you're not even sure you believe it. <laughs> you want to be able to validate it. So give us a street address and we'll put that up there. I teach from um, the method of very old school precept training. Um, many, many years ago, like 20, oh, it might be closer to 30-something years ago, um, when I was first trained to do in uh, teaching, this was how everything was done, was through... Uh, making a chart together and noting our facts. Uh, from my personal experience, I have found that is the best way to still teach this method. Because we are doing intensive study, we are all doing research, and we are all coming at this from varying levels of, of understanding about God's word or knowledge, right? We want to try to all come together and be on the same song sheet. So in order to do that, the best way is for us to make a list like this and put our references with it so that we can all see it's not just someone's opinion. 
this is a stated fact. He lets us know that he is not an eyewitness. But what did he do? He investigated. And that's in verse 3. Okay, so he investigated. Now, tell me what do we see about the purpose quality on this? Since we know he's not a personal eyewitness, he's, he, he did do some investigating in order to come to this. So let's try to develop the author's purpose just from what he gives us here in those first four verses. To write it out in consecutive an account of the things accomplished. Okay, and that is in? Four and one. Okay, good. All right. And I think I heard Janice in the back. What did you have to say? I love that. Because like it's an, he's, he's really letting us know, what, why would you think that that is such a significant goal? Why, do you think that's a lofty goal, a good goal? How valuable is, is the fact that this is his goal been for you and I? Good point. Good point, because obviously it was, um, there were always some contestings that were going on. Right? As a matter of fact, right from the beginning, this is why Jesus himself ends up being crucified. It's why Paul ends up going to various places and eventually to Rome to stand trial, right, to give a defense. It's why the Jews were constantly harassing and chasing after the apostles of Jesus Christ and any disciples that that also followed were under persecution because there was an uh, there was an aggression against the message of the storyline this narrative that we're giving about the uh, um, the account of the things accomplished now this is very interesting the word accomplished did anybody do a word study on that no one Okay, I want to give you this, this word study because this one was very interesting and I think very helpful to understand. What is it that you think he's speaking about when he uses this word accomplished? There you go. What's being fulfilled? What's being completed? Okay, the things that he has, the things that he has written out in consecutive orders, and those things which have been accomplished among them. Right? He says so. Here, let let me give you this definition here, real quick. It's over here. All right, it's number forty. Forty-one thirty-five. I got an extra number in here on mine. <laughs> okay, it means uh, to bear or bring full. Um, to fulfill. 
does that particular definition give you a little bit better insight about what, is what it is that the things are that are accomplished? Because if you look at the statement in, uh, on its own, that these are the things, I've compiled these things, undertaking to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, you're, you could be asking and should be asking the question, well, what things are accomplished? What are they talking about, right? If you follow on, he actually does give some insight into that. What is it he's saying that have been accomplished? Okay, things that have been handed down to them, the things which have been taught to them, right? Um, I like what verse 2, how verse 2 ends it, though. He talks about... It's those things that we have compiled, things that were from the beginning that we were, they were eyewitnesses and servants of what? The word. So what is being accomplished? The word. Whose word? Oh, God's word. So in this, what we have to begin to ask ourselves is, so what about God's word is it that this author is trying to convey to us in a very clear and truthful manner so that we know the fullness of it, so that we can rely and count on it, so that we can know for certain, certain things, right? I love that he gives us such a clear understanding of why he's writing. He's writing in a consecutive order an account of the things accomplished, what has been accomplished, things that have been fulfilled that pertain to the word, right? The word of God. And we're going to get more information about what that word of God was, what it was that God did and said, so that we can understand why he's bearing witness about it and why it's so important. But he does say this is the exact truth about it, right? This is the exact truth. I'm going to get the whole thing in here. The exact truth about the things you have been taught. Okay, that's in 1-3. All right, now, did you notice there is a conclusion term? Did you, did you see that in verse 4? Did you mark your terms of conclusion, by the way? She did not ask you to do that. Um, but as an inductive student, for those of you who are not familiar with how to study book, this is a gem for you. In the first couple of chapters, it takes you through all the basic principles of doing inductive Bible study. You don't have to do the whole book to get the basic um, understanding of what we are trying to do in our homework week by week. Just go into this book and read chapter 1. It talks about con what context is and how to set context. Chapter 2 is going to tell you how to go about finding that context. So what steps, what tools, what processes you need to go through in order to do that. This book is what Lois was saying earlier. She has some copies of it. I think she said $8. You only have two left, $8. That's a bargain, by the way. Uh, or you can go online and order it through Precept Ministries or probably Amazon, any of those places. But this is a resource tool, tool for inductive students that you will use over and over and over every single study, and you will hopefully be using it numerous occasions through the weeks as you're progressing through each study. 
for those who are trying to learn the process and really grab hold of the concept of what we are doing in this class and how we get through this homework. I can tell you when I first learned, I sat in my classes and I thought, how did they get those answers? What I don't get it. How did they know to do this or to do that, right? I didn't know how to do word studies. I didn't understand the process of list making. I didn't know why we were doing list making, right? So this particular book gives you the understanding of this method that we are using. And this method is really the key that opens up the treasure box. So if you don't have it, I strongly recommend that you have this particular book in your, in your resources, okay? All right, so one of the things that she will tell you in the processes of doing a good overview and of marking um, your chapters as you progress through them, one of the things you're going to always want to look for are terms of conclusion. And terms of conclusion are words such as, give me some ideas, therefore, so that, for this reason, right? So, or sometimes they'll say, nevertheless, okay? So anything that helps you say, well, what Kay says is, um, mark the therefores because your antenna should go up and you want to know what the therefore is therefore, okay? That's the premise behind it. And what it does is it prompts you to ask some more of those questions. Inductive Bible study is based on good investigative uh, uh, kinds of skills. Who, what, why, when, where, and how. And if you can teach yourself on a regular basis to ask, just like a reporter does, who was it, why was it, when was it, where was it, right, what was it. <laughs> and then by answering those questions in list form and making your scripture references available to yourself to go back later and look at them, when you make a list, the author's purpose, this is what we're drawing out, this is where we find the answer to it, this is going to eventually develop for you the skills that you need to get context set and once context is set to come to good un uh, understanding of each of the subjects that are brought up, right? Either the people or the places or the events in this case because we're looking at historical record. Okay, so he says th this is the exact truth about things that you have been taught. Do you see a so that as a conclusion statement in one through four? Okay, verse four, the very first two words is so that. I just circle them and color them yellow. I just want them to pop out on my page, and I don't want them to be too obstructed. I just want them, and consistency in marking is going to be your best friend. So one of the things that you can begin to do is as you're learning to mark things and coming up with keywords, the on the back of your how-to study book, there is an example of ways to mark words. Did you all find that when she gave you that instruction? If you didn't, um, hold on, I'll pull my book out. You can see on the back of your how-to study book, does everyone see this? Okay, this is some examples of how to mark. These are not set in stone, and none of them are, are you know, you, you don't have to mark them this way. It just gives you some ideas. Some people are not as uh, creative kind of in their thinking. Um, I color things the way I feel about them, you know. If something is happy, I go with yellow and pink. You know, if it's something is really evil, like sin, I go with black and grays. And so, you know, 
I color Israel everything blue just about, you know, just because it always makes me think of Israel. So those are kind of the, the, the concepts there. So tell me the so that in this. Concerning the author's purpose for writing, he's writing so that what? There you go. So that you may know the exact truth um, about those things, right? About the things that you have been taught. Okay, so that's in 1-4. All right, so that gets us started. Um, there are probably some other things. He talks about compi compi he compiled and carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Now, that's interesting, from the beginning. Have you d d drawn any conclusions about from the beginning of what at this point? Do you know from the beginning of? Okay. Okay, 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 from the beginning of their ministry as eyewitnesses and apostles? Okay, okay, good. All right, so from the beginning would be about the, the subject, which is our major subject, who is Jesus. So concerning Jesus, go ahead, Kathleen. Yeah. How far back to the beginning of Jesus do we go? <laughs> to be even before conception. So that, would you call that definitely a beginning for the work of his earthly ministry? Obviously not to the beginning before the creation of the world and so forth. But obviously this is about Jesus' coming and about his ministry that he does upon this earth, right? This is, this is from the beginning, as a beginning as you can get, right? Starting back with the conception. It's, it's the conception of, there we go, Carrie. Thank you. That's where I was going next. It's not only from the beginning of Jesus, right, the conception of Jesus where he comes to Mary, but also from the conception of, now this is an interesting little addition. One of the things that's very unique about the Gospel of Luke is this chapter 1. Um, do you all understand what a synoptic gospel is? What that means? Let me see if I wrote it down. Let's see if I can remember. Um, where did I write it? I thought I wrote it here. Okay, but we know what a synoptic is. Synoptic gospel means that a, 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 an account is written by two different authors with, with the, the bulk of the, pr the or, or the heart of the message being consistent in both although maybe worded slightly different, but very similar. You can tell it's the same storyline. So you're getting the story from two different people's perspective, right? But in that storyline, you're going to get ad additional things from one and, and or omissions from another, correct? And yet, are they compatible and, and complementary to one another, right? Okay, so this is the synoptic gospels. Now, there's another thing called that you can use, another tool called harmony of the gospels. Okay, and that's a book that I have right here to show you that I also think is really important. Now, synoptic gospels are 
fantastic uh, Bibles or resources for you to go into online and use when there is a record in, in more than one of the gospel accounts. So if, if Matthew and Mark and Luke, all three, have the record, it's synoptically presented, you can go in and look at all three uh, accounts and compare one to the other and see what's added, what's omitted, how that might shade things or change things for additional insight, right? But harmony the Gospels, this is a whole different um, deal. Th what this does is this shows you also where things like the Gospel of John fit in. Because although John is not considered a synoptic because it, it, his stories are unique and distinct from the other writers, however, his storyline does fit within all of the other accounts as far as um, it's still about Jesus, it's still about the record of his life, it's still about the events that took place during his ministry on earth, it still tells you about his, his death, burial, resurrection, right? So in that, there's still some things that are compatible and comparable, but this particular book here called The Harmony of the Gospels will include for you John. So I love using this particular one. This one also, therefore, uh, includes things like Luke chapter 1 where there is no synoptic. So uh, Matthew, Mark, and, and John, none of them record what you see in chapter 1 of Luke. So what does that tell you for you and I? Have, can you see any particular value that we have gained in having a Luke chapter 1? And how does that refer them back to what this author's purpose is? Yeah. What would you be missing if you did not have a Luke chapter 1? You would not understand the, 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 the backdrop to how did this man Jesus, our Savior, come? How was he conceived? Where was he born? Who, through whom was he born? Are these kind of points that you think are significant in light of what we're going to begin to dig into? Is it, is it important that we understand that he came, for instance, from the house of David? How, is that, how significant is that from what you've looked at this week in homework? Yeah. So one of the things he's doing, he's fulfilling prophecy. Now, did we not just say that that's exactly what he said? He's, it's an account of the things accomplished those things which were fulfilled, those things which were filled, which were the word of God, and the word of God was, was written by his holy prophets from of old. Do you see how all this now begins to really link together? The significance of us understanding the backdrop to all that uh, Christ does in his earthly ministry is all found in Luke chapter 1. What a treasure. So I have found it just really exciting. You know, we've done the Gospel of John before, and we've done Matthew in, our, in this particular st uh, study group. But Luke now is going to give us a, another shade of, of this storyline, this narrative of Christ and his coming. And Luke chapter 1 is completely unique to all the other accounts. All right, now... So we see the author's purpose then in this, that he has come so that you may know the exact truth. Now, when he states he, that you may know the exact truth, what does that trigger any questions or thoughts for you? 
Okay, maybe. Or that maybe it was lacking in some of its pieces as well, right? Some things have been omitted. Like we see, for instance, what we just talked about synoptically. If you go into uh, Matthew, he does not have this chapter 1 in Matthew. He skips this part of the storyline, right? Right. Very interesting, too. Now, how does he um, accreditate, sort of, his, how does he give himself authority that's kind of profound or unique? Okay. So he's done two very important things. Number one, he has looked into what has been handed down, and he has investigated everyone. So what does that tell you about, for instance, this narrative that we get about, for instance, the, um, the conception of John the Baptist? Where did he get that storyline from? Does our text even give us kind of an interesting thought on that? Okay, so many have undertaken, and when he undertook this, this process, this, this gathering together, accumulating of information, where do you think he went to get his facts? To the eyewitnesses. So although he himself was not an eyewitness, who did he speak to? The eyewitnesses. Now, when we go into a court of law, what, do, what does a court of law do? The same thing. They're, they are not allowed to take hearsay, supposedly, right? They're not allowed to um, make up or fabricate things. I think this and I think that. Boy, is that what... Uh, can you imagine if, our, if churches today had not had a written account? If we had not had this compiled record of the exact truth, and we had to base everything that we know about God, our relationship with him, on hearsay and on stories that have been handed down. Can you see the danger in that? So it is a divinely inspired endeavor that this particular author undertook. Yes. Okay, good question. Can anyone here give an answer to that? How long do you think it was? Okay, who did he get his information from? The eyewitnesses, right? So the eyewitnesses of all these things, the apostles, for instance. What about Mary? Is she still alive? Yes. What about Elizabeth? Is she still alive? So this man went and spoke to whom to get his information about the visitations of Gabriel, for instance? Who did he go and speak to? Isn't that interesting? I want you to go to verse 25 real quick and see what Elizabeth says. This is really cool because it's almost like she's answering his question when he's interviewing her, when he's investigating these things. She says to him, this is the way that the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. It's almost like she's answering his question. He has posed a question, and her response is, this is the way that God has dealt with me to remove my disgrace from among men. 
So what you can know is these are eyewitnesses that he interviewed. He did not go to secondhand, thirdhand, many generations later. He spoke to the eyewitnesses or the people who literally were the subject of the story, like Mary. So he interviewed Mary. He interviewed Elizabeth. Yes. So you see the gr that people group that are kind of the eyewitnesses. And what's I think interesting too is they seem to understand or grasp something that in the beginning with the storyline of Zacharias that he didn't seem to quite grasp. Even though he's the one who, did you find that interesting? He, Gabriel appears to, to Zacharias in the temple. He has a vision. And what ha what's his response? How will I know for sure? Now, how did the angel reply to his question? Basically, he calls him on the, he seems to have um, knowledge or understanding that from his heart, this was, an, this was a question of unbelief, not a question of, um, gosh, I'm, you know, okay. I, it's not like Mary, who Mary had questions too, right? But did the angel rebuke her? As a matter of fact, later when Elizabeth meets her, what, did, what was her response to Mary concerning her belief? She believed, she says, she's, huh? Yes, because you believe you are, you have found favor with God and blessed are you among women because you believed the word that was given to you. Where, what a contrast. Did you notice the contrast between, now think about the, the people involved in this as well. Zacharias, who is Zacharias? <laughs> How old is this Zacharias? He's aged. As a matter of fact, he's beyond the, the years of normal bearing of children. So he's a mature, grown uh, man. He's certainly over the age of, is at 30 when they come into the priesthood because he's a priest, right? He is probably m even way older than that because he's probably beyond the even normal years of bearing a child because they are childless is the, is the finality of that. So we see him, and then it's contrasted with who is Mary? Very young. How Do we know by tradition and, and research about the approximate age of Mary? She couldn't be more than 14 or 15, you know, maybe 16, but probably not even that old, because by tradition they marry very young in those days. And it was very common and totally uh, acceptable and expected for a very young girl to, to wait uh, or to marry very young. But for the man in the marriage relationship, he generally was older and more established so that he could provide. And so we have a very young girl. She's still a virgin, right? Gabriel appears to her and gives her this message, and what is her response? Yeah. What an amazing, I mean, I'm laughing, going, okay, this is like the senior pastor of a church and a young, you know, 15-year-old girl, and the faith of the two is being dis displayed to us in this context of this passage line, and it's showing us her faith was total faith. And not only was it faith, but what else did she do in that um, response? How did she respond? 
Okay, she, she makes references that indicate she has knowledge of Scripture. And her response to God's request of her, so to speak, I guess we call it a request, but God is coming to her to say, through you I am going to bring the son, my son, right? You're going to bear this child. And what does she say? May it be done according to, to your will. And I am the bond servant or the bond slave of the Lord. So total acceptance, and yet then there's Zacharias. What a interesting, did, you, did everybody in here kind of note that? Was they going through the homework? Going, wow, here's a little girl, basically, and she's totally believing God and saying, yay, okay, God. And then there's Zacharias, like, um, are you sure? <laughs> right? I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, the whole, the whole thing is just mind-blowing. Okay, so these two records are given to us through the investigation of this author who is unnamed for us at this point. We don't know for sure, but we know by tradition it's Luke, right? But So Luke is investigating by going to Mary and saying, tell me your story. I'm going to write this down so that we know the exact truth because Obviously, already, even that early in history, there were competing uh, storylines that were going out there. The pe some people were not believing, right? It, when you move further into any of your gospel studies, what is the response to Jesus' message that he is the Christ? Some believe, some don't. A lot of them don't. And as a matter of fact, the more seasoned leaders of, of the Jewish system, right, the, the, uh, the priests and the, the rabbis, they are totally rejecting Jesus, right? Many of them. Um, and so the investigation is, it, it's necessary in order to clarify that I didn't just get this information handed down to somebody who handed it down to somebody who handed it down to somebody. I got it through the eyewitness or the person whom it happened to. Does that help you? Okay, so we see that in verses 1 to 4, which is huge in context setting because how does that now affect the rest of what we're going to learn in the book of Luke? Total credibility. This, is, this gives him validation, confirmation, and authority, right? Because he is now not just going on hearsay. He's doing as we would in a court of law or should in a court of law, <laughs> we are going in and investigating for the exact truth to know exactly what happened. And is he taking his storylines from just one avenue? No. Even on this part, it seems to me that he has, he has investigated through speaking to Mary and Zacharias and Elizabeth. And then he has merged their storylines in a way in consecutive order or in an orderly fashion so that you see the unfolding of this storyline that makes sense, right? Now, why would, what, can you, uh, you know, come up with any thoughts that, uh, on your part about why you think it's important for him to have written this out? It seems like he's writing it out. And who is he writing it out for? Who's the recipient of this? Theophilus. Okay, so let's go over here. The recipient... is T-H-E-O, oh, I don't know how to spell it. <laughs> got to get it over here, hold on. I got it written down, though. T-H-E, 
O P H I L U S. I could have guessed, but I didn't want to mess with it. Okay, so tell me what do we know then about Theophilus? Now you're on board. You got it, girl. Okay, now how did you come to that conclusion? Was it in the text? No. So now is where inductively sometimes all you get is a name, right? Uh, what would be some things that you might want to do as an inductive student? It wasn't in your homework, but what might you want to do to try to learn more? Very good. Do a word study on the person's name. One of the important things inductively that you find out is name, uses of name, including the names that are used specifically for God or Jesus throughout the text, when there's a title given to him. For instance, in, in here we see God referred to as God Most High. That's a significant title and has a specific meaning behind it, and it gives a, a, a nuance or an additional insight about what maybe is being stated there by the way that they call him, right? Names have meanings, particularly in the Hebrew. So what did you learn about Theophilus? What does his name mean? Okay, so we're going to put this up here. Theophilus. Okay, it's number 2321. It's, um, it means, okay, sh you said lover of God or friend of God. Okay. That's his name meaning. So what does that right there to off the bat tell you about this man? If this is the name that he's been given, not only... Now, we don't know if that was the name he was born with or if it was a name that he was changed to later on, but what we do know is it's the name that he is being addressed as in this text, right? And since it's being used of him in this text, what he, they are doing is conveying to you insight about the recipient, right? Are you catching that? Okay, so how valuable is it for you to understand that the recipient is a lover of God and a friend of God? Okay, okay, well, we didn't get there yet, but yes, okay. His name, Theophilus, is what? It's Greek. So what does that also might tell you? He's probably Greek. Okay, so what is he not? Then what is he not? Jewish. <laughs> okay. So can you see already just by a word study that you can develop insights there subtly there just by the, the name that he's given? We know he's probably Greek. Good, very good, strong possibility on that. We know that he's a lover or a friend of God, therefore he's a believer of God. And when there's another part of his name most excellent. He is called most excellent. Theophilus. I should have changed to my black marker, sorry. Okay, most excellent. So what does that tell us? Does anybody do some research on that? Because it doesn't tell us in the text, but what, what do you know about that from maybe some of your commentary looks? Okay. Uh, it's what Lisa said a moment ago. Go ahead. Okay. 
Yeah. So there's a couple of things that comes out of this title, Most Excellent, is number one, he's probably an authority, such as a governor or a ruler, right, over a city or a district or a precinct, so to speak, right? He has some kind of uh, leadership or, or governing title, most excellent, is that is gives us that insight. And also, it indicates to us that he, he's someone of prominence, therefore, because those are the, who the rulers and leaders were. It uh, kind of works the same today, doesn't it? They're the ones who th- have got the financial money behind them. So he probably has financial means. Now, what might that mean, therefore, in the way that this author comes to you and says, look, I'm writing to you, most excellent Theophilus. Right there, by the way that he addresses Theophilus, what does that tell you about the dynamics between these two? Say it again. Okay, one seems to be the one that the other is serving, in, in a sense. In this case, what we see then is this author is in some, to some measure, we're not totally sure of all of it, but the, some measure of what he is doing in the writing of this account. He, there is, for the purpose of serving or being of assistance or benefiting, the benefactor here in it is Theophilus, correct? Who is a Greek, Right? Now, what does that tell you then about m- maybe the, the bent on how this author is going to address a lot of the things that he conveys to this Greek man? Right. Or, not from the Jewish perspective, in that he's not going to make assumptions. This Greek man understands the Jewish back story. Correct? Does that make sense? So this tells you then that he is going to convey things to him from the perspective of explaining things as he moves along. He's not going to just make assumptions that this recipient understands Hebrew traditions, Hebrew prophecies, Hebrew uh, lifestyle. He's going to add in flavor, so to speak, the narrative as he moves along to explain things and make it clearly understood, which is why he says that you may know the exact truth, right? So it makes it clear to him that he will understand. So he's writing, are we thankful for that or what? Because are we Hebrew? (laughs) We're not only not Hebrew, we're not even in the context of that historical time frame of Rome right? So we are, we are also needing this additional insight. So he drops in a lot of uh, uh, additional facts that help to clarify things for us. Hallelujah. Yeah. There you go. Oh, I'm so glad you did that. Okay, so when you move into Acts, somebody go in, into Acts and let's read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, because this is additional backdrop insight into who the recipient is, okay, and who even our author is and what their relationship is. He also goes on to explain the, I think, the difference between one writing and the other. Why are there two books if it's the same author and the same recipient, which is what we're going to see. Somebody read verses 1 and 2. 
Okay, so what does this show us then about the, the relationship between our author and the recipient? Okay, it's ongoing. He starts out by writing one account. Which was the first account written by this author? Luke was. And then he follows it with the second account in Acts, the book of Acts. What is the distinction? Why the break between the two writings? Okay, we're going to, yes, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Okay. Very good. Yes. Okay, so most excellent is a title of rank. That in that day, it's a title of rank, most excellent. As a matter of fact, you see them refer to most excellent this and most excellent that all through the book of Acts. We, this same author continues to use that term when he speaks to uh, Festus and to, who is the other guy? It starts with an F also. Anyway, the other rulers in those. Could be. But it also could, it's just, we don't know that much detail on it. What we do know is he, it's a title of rank. Therefore, he is a, a man of prominence. He's therefore a man of financial means. We know that this author is writing to him, and it seems like there's a need for this author to make sure he understands the exact truth. And he gives it to him in such a way that he says, I have interviewed and compiled this account through firsthand eyewitness uh, testimonies. So I have spoken to Mary, I have spoken to Elizabeth, I have spoken to Zacharias, and I am recording this so that you know the exact truth. Pretty cool, right? Maybe, but you know, they were, they were living really long at that time. And it sure sounds to me like in verse 25, she's giving him her own record. This is how the Lord did what the Lord did to me, she says. So it seems to me from that one verse anyway that she is making a declaration because otherwise that would not be an eyewitness account that he wrote. It would be secondhand. And he says it was through eyewitness rec record. So I'm still standing on the fact that he spoke to them specifically. In per he, and he testifies to that before this most excellent, high-ranking person. 
and he's doing it for the purpose of an exact truth that, and in, compiled in an orderly fashion. There was, uh, did anybody do any other research on that quality about why this author may have written to this particular man, Theophilus, and what might have been going on there? I think um, Mo Molly, is that right? Molly actually kind of touched on, uh, uh, almost hit it anyway. Uh, one of the commentaries I looked at talked about possibly Theophilus had something to do with the legal things that were going to be going on regarding the word of God when it came to Paul, for instance. And so if he had something to do with Paul and the, um, the need for an exact record in order to collaborate or to verify the things that Paul would be saying in his trials, then that might have a legal there might have a, a legal purpose even for some of the writing, which kind of, what does that do for us? If that's true, and, and we're only drawing conclusion from the clues, and that's, that's how we're doing What I love about this, though, is we're drawing the conclusions from the clues. We're not counting on someone else to tell us what, what we're seeing. What we're doing is we're taking what is said, we're believing it as, as factual truth, and we're drawing conclusions from what is actually recorded, right? So if this Theophilus... Is a, is a high-ranking person, and maybe he is an officer of the court, or maybe he's a, just a leader and he has good financial backing, but apparently he has, he has a real vested interest in whatever the, this exact truth is that's being given to him here through the book of Luke, and it's ongoing. How long do you think it took for Paul to write this record? I mean, uh, for Luke to write this record. I mean, if he goes on to write, then follow up with what? The book of Acts, which takes you even more time down the line, you're, you know, into um, the days of Paul. So it does take years. So Kathleen, you're right about that. But it seems to me like he, he must have been young when he started this. He was working on this all this time. And he, and he ha according to um, Acts, if it's Luke who is this author, he also accompanied Paul in many of his missionary journeys and the things that he was doing. And he accompanied him how? What was his role in life? He was a physician, a doctor. And so uh, what we understand about Paul is Paul had so many medical things that he needed a physician on, on tour with him as he made his missionary journeys and so forth. Um, and as many times as he got almost beaten to death, he probably needed that doctor even more. So um, w we can't... One of the things um, that we don't want to do is go too far and say these are absolutes and this is the way it is. But what we want to do is where I started with us at the beginning of this study is to say he's unnamed and we're not completely certain. What we're doing is we are drawing points out that we can get. One of the points that we do have as an absolute is Acts chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. There was a part 1 and there was a part 2. And we know his purpose because so, he says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. And the things that they have been taught, oop, that one's dead. I know, I'm going to throw that in over there. Hold on, let me get another one. Yeah, th those are not mine there. <laughs> and they're probably worse. <laughs> okay, so, but the so that helps us greatly to understand the author's purpose and function, okay? Um, it get, one of the great things about being an inductive student is 
these pillars, okay? We have two pillars in doing inductive Bible study that we always make reference to at some point along the way, and I will probably say them a hundred times in this study. But there are two, two main pillars. Can somebody tell me what they are? Doctrine. Number one about doctrine, never what? Violate. Never violate known doctrine. Now, what is known doctrine? How do you define known doctrine? Things that are pillars of the faith, things that are commonly accepted, understood, and well taught throughout all of Scripture. Who is God? Who is man? What is sin? You know, this real basic, out there in your face, undisputable things, right? About who God is and who Jesus is. So that's your known doctrine. You never violate your known doctrine. So if you hit a passage where it sounds like they're saying about God that he's evil, what do you now know? What do you do? You never violate your known doctrine. Is God evil? No. So, oh, my conclusion on that's wrong. Whatever is said in that verse, I have to investigate it further to see what, what is being said there and what is the actual intent or meaning. So, number one, never violate known doctrine. Number two, and it's the reason why today's uh, study is so important to us, and why I'm hanging more on the contextual things than I am going to be on all the other details in here. But what is our second pillar? Context is king. I love it. Context is king and context rules for interpretation. So if you're going to come to a sound interpretation, you do have to know your context for that particular book because everything that is said by the author and that's taught through the the pages of Luke is taught from this perspective right here so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have uh, been taught, okay? So those two things are super important and you always want to hold on fast to those. As you move through and if you hit a spot, if you hit a bump and you're going, ooh, I don't really like that or that makes me feel uncomfortable or I'm not real sure I believe that, just remember the two pillars. Never violate known doctrine and hold fast to your known, your, your, never violate your known doctrine, and allow your context to rule for your interpretation. If you do those two things alone, you're 100% ahead of everybody else almost, okay? So you're further down the road. All right, so the recipient we know for a fact, his name is Theophilus. We know that, a, that another writing was d given that, that uh, Luke is his, is his second, oh, no, Luke is, his first, sorry, writing to Theophilus. Okay? Luke is his first writing to Theophilus. Acts is his second. Does that give you any um, uh, insight about the relationship between the author and the recipient and maybe the ongoing relationship that they have? Okay, good. So I would say particularly the way that, that Luke is opened should give all of us great confidence, don't you think? Does it give you and I confidence when you know that this author is making a testimony and saying, this is the exact truth and this is how I know it because I interviewed those who were eyewitnesses, right? So he went directly to the source to get the stories and that's what he recorded. Yay. All right. So that's about our recipient then. Um, 
It's, one of my commentaries said he may have been Luke's patron who financed the writing of Luke and Acts. That's an, something else that we've kind of drawn out as a supposition on our part. Um, he, he may have been a financier, um, which was common in that time to have because the writing of, of these kinds of documents was very expensive and very time-consuming. They didn't have computers and, and uh, typewriters and you know thi those kinds of things available. Everything was done by hand. To purchase even the parchments and the writing instruments was expensive. So they're making an assumption or, a or at least a, a theory that he may have been a financier for him. Um, that was out of the Bible Knowledge Commentary from Dallas Theological Seminary. That's where I got that little note. Um, another one um, from the Bible Knowledge Commentary uh, from Dallas Theological Seminary was Acts 1, the first account, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. It's a very important statement. He divides the work of Christ into two great branches, is how they say it. In the first document, which is Luke, writing about Jesus, but what part about Jesus are, is being addressed in Luke? His, per, his, his birth, his resurrection, uh, and his um, ministry, the years that he spent upon this earth, correct? When you move into Acts, how, what do we see about Jesus? After his, res his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and all that he did by the, the work of the Holy Spirit, but yet it's still considered the work of Christ in this life, in this world. By the way, which continues on to our present day, right? All right, so that's kind of a, a really cool, dividing the, those two great branches, that's why the book division there, Luke embraces his work on earth and Acts is his subsequent work from heaven. Um, all right, so that gives us author and recipient. That gives us the author's purpose, and that sets the major part of context for us. Then the, the next thing we want to do is look at that flow of thought. Okay, tell me what you see in the flow of thought. Now, <laughs> this was fun. Flow of thought simply means you're doing paragraph titles. That's all that means, so don't let it, the terminology in this um, kind of throw you off a little bit, but when she gave you uh, verses and she said, look for the bold prints on your observation worksheet and each bold uh, number that when it's bolded, that tells you it's the beginning of, an, of another paragraph. Now those are guidelines. They're not written in stone. For some of us, we never stay inside, we don't color inside the lines very well. <laughs> we like to do our own thing. Um, but there's always different ways to look at things, how you subdivide things down. When I first went through, I started by doing exactly what she said. I looked at every bold letter a point, and I titled each paragraph. Did you all do that? Like you have a gazillion paragraphs? I mean, and it gets pretty complicated, doesn't it? When you're reading through that, did it make you go, okay, I know what this is about, right? It kind of it felt like you just kept going from portions of events to portions of <laughs> events and then to a, another, like an interlude there with Mary and then back to Elizabeth. And so it was, a, to me, it was a little bit disjointed as far as trying to grab a hold of what's going on in this chapter, Right. But the good thing about doing that process is once you were done with paragraph, 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 what did you conclude by looking at the individuals that are stated? Who are the people groups that are 
in here? Who are the people, characters? Okay, the people is Z-A-C-H-A-R-I-A-S, uh, and there's a variety of ways to spell that, by the way. Zacharias, Elizabeth, okay, and then Mary, and at the close it goes to John. And kind of this is also about John, but, it's, but there is some distinction. So these are your major people groups. Did you notice that if you wanted to, you actually could break this chapter down into three paragraphs? Did any of you do that by chance? Okay. That's what I did <laughs> because I wanted to simplify this for you and make it really super easy to just see the flow here. So although you may not have done this, what I want you to do is I want you to follow with me through your titles in in this and I want you to tell me what you see going on so in we know in one to four is the introduction one to four is our introduction right um, and I let's see if I basically what was written and why right what and why written Okay, that's one through four. Then you start in verse five, and what do you see in the, that next paragraph? It's about who? Five, is it five to seven, correct? What happened there? Okay, it starts out by introducing to us these two characters. And one of the things that's important to understand about the Word of God is the economy of the use of language and words. They don't give you anything more than you need, and they don't give you anything less than you need, right? They try to give you just enough of the facts and backdrop information, but they don't, in other words, they tell you what time it is, but they don't tell you how to build the clock. That's my job. I'm telling you how to build the clock, <laughs> which is, can be overwhelming for some people who are really just get to the point people. But the, the thing with inductive study is that's the point. You're breaking it down into those minute pieces. And I can tell you this, for a person who needs to understand how the clock was built before I can get on board with you about your conclusions, to me this process of knowing how you built that clock is, is really what it's all about. And it's why inductive study, I think, is so appealing to so many people. They can sit through sermon after sermon and years and years of being in church and in, in different Bible studies, and people will throw things out, and they're like, in the back of their mind, they're going, well, how do you know that, right? The great thing in this class is there are no dumb questions, and it's okay to challenge your emotional feelings about statements. What I want to do is draw you into understanding the process, how you're going to get to an answer that is done through objective observation. Standing on the premise that God's word is truth, not violating known doctrine, let your context rule for interpretation, and from there we move forward, little by little. Okay, so he states the introduction, what, why, when, where, and how, in one through four. Five, he starts out by introducing us to Elizabeth and Zacharias. What is the, apparently the most important quality about these two people that this writer wanted us to know? They have no children and? And, I'm sorry? They're righteous in, the, in God's eyes. They're 
advanced in years. Thank you. And not only advanced in years, but barren. Thank you. I was I was listening for childless, and it didn't it didn't come out that way. Okay, <laughs> okay. And they are without a child. Okay. Now, why is that maybe significant? Do you think in this storyline? What happens next? Yeah. This this angel appears to Zacharias in the temple while he's serving before the Lord. He's supposed to be in his mind in the most holy of places emotionally and mentally, right? It's one of the things about the work of the priest when they go into the temple. Do you remember all the ceremonial preparation they have to go through? And when it's the high priest, which we're not talking about that here, but the high priest, he has to wash and change clothes. And, I mean, he doesn't even want to talk to anyone or see anyone until he enters in and does his work because he wants to be as pure before the Lord as possible, right? The whole picture is of the sinless high priest, right? And so he goes through this whole process. So here's this man once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do what he's doing. He's in there, an angel appears to him and announces he's going to have a son. I found something interesting about this. When he told him you're going to have a son, how does he preface that? Oh, yeah. Uh, John? Or Zacharias, that thing that you have been praying about for years and years, it's going to happen. It wasn't like he just out of the clear blue came in and brought up a new subject that no one had ever thought about. This was something that, by the way, uh, Zacharias, I want to call him John, Zacharias was apparently, even in the temple at that moment, petitioning God about Yes. So all the petitions, I mean, there, I mean, isn't that just a, a profound thing? And then his response is, are you sure? <laughs> are, I'm thinking, man, if I was in, if I were, I, I mean, I know we've all done this because we all love the Lord, but there are times in my life where I am just in a more holy state in my mind. I am m- more prepared to meet the Lord, more sensitive to God we just thought we are all this way we go through valleys and 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 hilltop experiences in our life for Zacharias this moment in the temple should have been a hilltop moment when he was really in tune with God and really prepared to listen and hear God and when an angel appeared before him what should have been his response yay oh my gosh he should have come out out of there shouting for joy God has heard my petition. God is going to do this great deed for me. But instead, what did he come out of the temple shouting? Absolutely nothing. So isn't that, boy, could we not have a lengthy discussion about this one? What is our response to God, our God, our personal relationship with God? Um, When God gives us a word in you know, obviously not, I haven't had an angel appear to me. Uh, you may have, but I have not. But when God does give you a clear sign that he's speaking to you, when he gives you a clear indication that he has an answer for you, maybe you're not seeing it yet, but you really feel it and you believe it in your heart that God is going to do this for you. But yet then what do we tend to do? Question it. What do we learn about that attitude toward God and his word 
from the experience of Zacharias. God does not like it when you do that. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, there can be some rather harsh and stern complications or consequences, right, to our lack of faith in God. Walking with God is an act of faith. It is a, an act of, it is a daily submitting to him. As Mary said, I am your, your bond slave. And it's, and it's daily believing God, believing the basic principles of who God is and what his word says. So when you and I pick up the word of God, for instance, we're doing Luke, and we read these th things, <coughs> our heart should be to what? To trust and obey and believe. Believe what's written, trust it, and have faith in it. Now, does that mean we never have questions? No. Did Mary have a question when she responded to Gabriel? Yes. But was her question one of unbelief or of profound shock and wondering how is this going to happen? There's a, apparently a difference in the attitude of the heart of these two people. The angel understood it, and by the response to, to the situation where, where Zacharias is then uh, made mute for the whole time of his wife's pregnancy, um, this is this is something that you and I need to really consider when we also come into our study time. We need to come into this kind of study and say, you know what, God, I don't have all the answers. I don't know them all yet, but I have a lot of questions. But one thing I do know, I believe you and I trust you. I will obey whatever I do know, right? And along the way, along the journey, we press hard to learn more to comprehend it better. This is why uh, this book was written. These things are written so that we will know the exact truth. And knowing is not just um, emotionally accepting everything. It is not that. But it is based on the premise of faith that God is good, understanding those known pillars of truth about who our God is. Hebrews 11 uh, tells us um, that you must uh, have faith that you must believe God, believe that God is, and that he, he is a rewarder of those that seek him. So as we seek him, we, we need to understand that we need to believe that he is. What does that mean to believe that he is? Is what? He is God. He is what? He is all that he says he is throughout the whole scripture. In other words, in this book, what we are learning is that God is a, is a God of what? What have we learned about God in this particular book? We can do a little detour here real quick. What did we learn about God in this book? Okay, anything is possible. Is that how it's stated with God? And what is that verse? There's, oops. <laughs> I don't know. It's my first day. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't know who, who answered me. <laughs> That's good. You did good, though. Okay. So it says, for nothing will be impossible with God. It is in verse 37. Okay. So instead of anything, it should say nothing. But anyway. Okay. So what else did you learn about God when you studied? Okay, and give me the verse. He fulfills his word. Okay, what verse are you in? 
uh, 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 oops, she'll look for it. G give me the reference as soon as you got it, Susan. Anything else that we learned about him? All right, he keeps. Okay, he remembers his holy covenant. And that's in verse 72, okay? Oh, boy. Does that not open, that like, that opens up a whole new possibility of, a, of another study on the subject of covenant as well, to understand that better, which is why Kay had us in our homework go in and look just very briefly about the Abrahamic covenant, about the um, Davidic covenant, right, and about how in the New Testament in Galatians 3 we get interpretation of the, the Abrahamic covenants to give us better insight. But that is a 12-week course that you can take inductively on the subject of covenant so that you understand covenant itself. Essential for anyone who, who really does not understand their faith, right? It's, it's an amazing study. It really is foundational. Co understanding salvation and then understanding how you can know that you have been saved is First John. So covenant and First John to me are two key books. All right, now, so he remembers his holy covenants. It's another thing we learned about God. Um, when you looked, she had us on day five going and look at uh, about God in verses 67 to 79, which is where Kathleen took us. So let's hang in there a little bit. What, had, what else did you learn about God there? He accomplished redemption. I hope this this marker can be seen. It's really, really weak. Let's see if I've got another one I can use instead. I'm going to have to write to these companies. Okay, so he accomplished redemption, and that's found in verse 68. That's a better marker. Okay. I, I, also in 68, what else did he do? He visited us. Now, that's very interesting. Um, who's saying this? Zacharias. And at what point is Zacharias saying this? After the birth of his son, but before the birth of Jesus. And yet he has said about Jesus, he has what? He has visited us, and he has what? Accomplished redemption. So what does that tell you about how far Zacharias has come in his believing of the announcement of any angel? What does this mean that he now believes about Mary? That she is, has conceived in her womb who? the Messiah, the Son of God. And therefore, he's speaking as a done deal, these things about redemption and these things about the fact that he has come. He has come. He is not physically born yet, but he has come. He is in the womb right now of a young handmaiden named Mary. And 
Would you say that's quite a journey that this Zacharias has made from back in the earlier verses where he's doubting God and for unbelief he's having to be made mute. Now the very first words out of his mouth when his muteness is, is revoked and he's back to being able to speak, his first thing is to praise God. And he speaks about what God has done, that, the, that, the, that he has made his visitation, he is here, he has visited us. And he has accomplished redemption. So he sees it as a done deal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think, though, that Zacharias knows about Elizabeth? How long was Elizabeth, I mean, does he know about Mary? How long has Mary been staying with he and his wife? For three months. Do you suppose she's begun to sh have signs? Do you suppose she's shared her story? obviously, right? Elizabeth herself, what is Elizabeth's response when Mary shows up at her door before a word is said between the two of them? What happened in, the, in her womb? The child leaped for joy, and she says to Mary of her, what? How blessed, yes, that, yes, the mother of my Lord has visited me. How is it that I am so graced? How is it that I am so privileged, right? So th this tells you what he already knows. So here we see as he's speaking about God, he's saying God has visited us and he has accomplished redemption, right? Um, and concerning that, w uh, in, he goes on in verse 70, he says, what else has he done? Okay, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Now, how does this relate to e even what we're doing here in the bo book of Luke? How is it that Luke is even writing down these things according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? By the inspiration of God, right? And and it's it's under inspiration. And, and in um, uh, Timothy, I think it was, it says that holy men of God and of old wrote while under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They didn't write of themselves. It wasn't of their own thinking or of their own minds. But what they wrote was through inspiration. So it's really interesting to me how now we see actually a, a moment here where it clarifies us actually within the word of God itself that God's spirit falls upon these people and they speak. Mary does it, Elizabeth does it, and Zacharias does it. Isn't that cool? So you get three occurrences where you see the Holy Spirit moving them to speak truth that's been inspired by God. And, and they couple that with their experiences in life and they come out with a fuller understanding. Okay, so this is in um, 70, verse 70. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. What did he swear? Or and who did he swear to? He swore an oath, right? To who? Abraham. To Abraham. And that's in verse 73. Um, why did he do that? Does it tell us why, what motivated God? 
Okay. It, it, yes. Okay. Okay. He did it to fulfill or to... He says he remembered his holy covenant, meaning he remembered it to act upon it, correct? To, to fulfill it, which goes back to accomplishing the things that have been accomplished, meaning the word of God, those things have now been accomplished. In verse 78, there's a because statement. Because of his tender mercy. So here we see the love, the grace, the compassion of our God, and this is motivating him to visit us, to bring redemption, to fulfill his promises, his oaths, his covenants. And therefore, he is now here. He, he says in verse 69, what? What did he do? He raised up a, yeah, a horn of salvation. In the house of David. Now, is that significant? What, how, what did we learn about that? Why did it have to be in the house of David? What does that mean? Now, we're going to get more into genealogy either next week or the next. I'm not sure. But um, why the house of David? There you go. So he, we, when, Kay, when Kay took us on day five to go look at the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, what we see is God made another covenant promise, not just to Abraham to bring a seed, right, but also to David that through the, the lineage of David would come a king. And how long would that king rule? Forever. He would establish his, his, his dynasty, the Davidic dynasty, forever now that's pretty hard for a lot of people to understand because do we have a davidic dynasty going on right now on the earth no we have had a lull in things haven't we? we've seen a break in things this this era that we call the church age and in the interim until that day when god will also fulfill those things spoken through daniel we will see then god bring back the king of kings as the king of kings now here came the complication for the jews is that they often did not separate the savior and the king in the two work excuse me that were going to be done there so raised up a horn of salvation in the house of david is significant the fact that he was going to be fulfilling an oath to Abraham was significant. And this author has to include that in his record of this for this Gentile man who may not fully understand that there was an oath given to Abraham or that there was a promise made to David. And so he's clarifying that by making sure that's in the written record for, for that you would know the exact truth. That these things, therefore, what are being fu fulfilled are what? They're true. These are basically God's promises made. They are the covenants of God given to the fathers for salvation. In other words, like, for instance, as a matter of fact, that seed that was promised to, Abra or to Abraham, where was the first time in Scripture that seed was promised? Was it just to Abraham? No, that same seed was promised back in the Garden of Eden to Eve, that her seed would crush the head of Satan one day. There's a link all the way back to the Garden, although she, he doesn't put that part in here, but he does take him back to the covenant promise made to Abraham of a seed. Um, 
and the bottom line then is in all of this what we are seeing this author show us is all these things are now being accomplished that's why that word accomplished the word fulfilled the word prophet and prophecy become dynamic words throughout this whole book and you and I need to understand this so we're going to mark on here keywords you're going to want to start a keywords list and you're going to use these word prophet um, prophecy the word basically the word of God in any of its facts you know variations you're going to want to see fulfilled marked or accomplished and then anything that's similar to that just mark them all in the same way you don't have to mark each word distinctive just mark the word fulfilled and the word accomplished are referring to the same thing so mark them in the same way so that you have one symbol to look for and that will help you and it, because what you're going to be seeing especially in this record since he's telling us it's the exact things about the things that have been accomplished you're going to be seeing a lot of references of prophecies that are going to be made and now, now their fulfillment and how, how God is bringing to fruition the things which he spoke through his holy prophets of old. So that becomes a major subject in this book, and you're going to want to pay attention to that, okay? And that's going to link us all the way back then to your author's purpose for writing, and you're going to be able to get a nice continuity flow. There's going to, what's going to happen for us at this point is all these different um, um, characters are going to be introduced, a storyline is going to be developed, and then they're dropped and moved on. And we go into another storyline and another character and dropped and moved on. But we need to find the thread that runs through the whole thing, and that you can just pull that thread and you can get the whole, the whole picture of it. This is why we need to understand what the author's purpose is, okay? So we know his purpose is to show us that these prophecies the word of God has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who has come. And as each account is given to us, we're going to see supernatural things that have done, been done and, this, and the record of how exactly they were done so that we see the exact truth about what has been accomplished. Pretty cool? Are you getting a pretty good grip on this now? I wish we had more time to go into more detail. But what I want to do is show you how this book can break down. I'm just going to kind of simplify this. Five, um, five to 25 is about Zacharias and Elizabeth. Hold on a second. Let me just. It's about, how did I state it here? Hold on. Mm -hmm. Hold on. I, ha I thought I had it written here more concisely. Let me just do it this way. 5 to 25 is all about um, the John's birth is being prophesied. You can say it however you want. Uh, I'm going to put it here. John's conception. Okay. Th in 5 to 25. We see in 26 to 55, Mary's conception. And then in 56 to 80, I guess it is, right, is John's birth. 
Now, that does not give you any details. Those are like segment division titles. They're more like, rather than being paragraph titles, I broke it down to just give you big chunky pieces. But you can now see it's four paragraphs to look at in essence. And within each paragraph, there are sub-paragraphs that you can look at all the details in there. One of the things I loved was, for instance, in verses um, uh, 5 to 7, it lets us know that, that the conception of, of Elizabeth was as supernatural as the conception of Mary in that they were beyond years. It was not a human possibility to have happened. We saw this same kind of miraculous thing with Abraham and Sarah, right? that this was something man could not have done, but that God opened the womb and God allowed her to conceive. So they had no child, but in 8 to 17, it, Gabriel appears, foretells that he's going to have a son, and, but the most important part about this is not that he's going to have a son, but that this, who this son is going to be. Who is he? The forerunner. So I don't know, uh, John's conception, he is the forerunner. of the Lord, right? So the four, his conception is recorded for us so that we understand it's a supernatural thing. Then we see Mary, the same thing. She is, she, uh, uh, well, let me back up. What was the responses? There were actually three basic responses. If you didn't catch this, this were, would have been good titles for those paragraphs that follows. 18 to 20, how does Zacharias response? doubt or unbelief in 21 to 23 how did the people respond well what did the people say about him when he came out of the temple he had had a vision they had more faith than he did <laughs> he was going are you sure right and, they, and he was the one actually face to face with this angel and his response was fear that's the natural response whenever there's a record of an angel appearance right but the people recognized that he had actually had a vision so they saw more than Zacharias did actually they had a more faith even at that point than he did then in 24 to 25 what was the response of Elizabeth yeah Elizabeth praised God for what he had done to her or for her, right? So there were three responses to the announcement. And you, those would make really good titles and help clarify the flow of thought here. It's showing you what was announced and how the different people groups responded, okay? Same thing happens in the next segment when you hit the segment on Mary's conception. You see responses to it. First, Gabriel appears, tells us she's going to bear the Son of God. 34 to 38, what did Mary, how did Mary respond? I'm your handmaiden, right? I'm the bond slave of the Lord. 39 to 40, then how did Mary respond? Oh, I'm not sure. That lady's too old. She's not going to have a baby. No, what does she do? She immediately, it says, immediately she goes in haste to see Elizabeth, right? To to confirm with her own eyes what the angel had said to her. What a great thing for her to show up and see a very pregnant Elizabeth at this point because of that. Now, what was Elizabeth's response in 41 to 45 to Mary? Yes. So she affirms. This is really interesting. Think about this. Mary hasn't told anybody she's pregnant. She shows up, and before she says a word, according to the, the record, 
Elizabeth confirms you're bearing this, this, the Savior, the Lord, in your womb. How comforting do you think that was to Mary in that moment? Who is right now going, oh my gosh, what am I going to do, right? All right, then 46 uh, to 55 is the last uh, response of Mary to this whole scenario, and that's what? The Magnificent, where she exalts the Lord. And she actually, if you want to break that Magnificent down, it has two basic parts to it. The first part is she thanks God for favor on who? On herself. And then at the last part of it is his favor for who? Israel, the nation. So isn't that cool? That kind of breaks down very clearly, very concisely. So what I'm trying to do by talking you through this is to show you, you don't have to make these accounts more complicated than they are. Too much detail is too much detail. Try to make it concise to the point. Look at it from the perspective of what is this author trying to convey to us right? So if you, what you're looking at is what was told to them and how they responded, what was told to them and how they responded, then you're going to get a clearer flow of thought that isn't so jumbled up with a lot of details of things that happened, because there is a lot of information in there. The same thing with the last one with John. Elizabeth gives birth to John, right? And what are the responses? 59 to 64, what do Zacharias and Elizabeth now do? That, yeah, they actually obey God, and they name their son what they, they were told to do. So, so now you see an act of obedience, which is an act of faith, by the way, which is totally the opposite of where Zacharias started, right? And it, there were so many cool nuances about that storyline, about why was there the argument about the name and so forth, and hopefully you did some research on that. It's really, under, it's really fantastic. Okay, 65 to 66, what did the people say that they... What was their response about John himself? Yeah, there was a fear that came upon them, and uh, this fear, I get the idea of excitement, of, wow, I wonder what this kid, this is supernatural, wonder, have you guys ever had that happen where something really supernatural kind of happens in our midst with a child or with a rescue of a life or with the birth that shouldn't have happened or whatever, or a healthy baby that's supposed to be brain dead or, I mean, all kinds, and then you think, golly, I wonder what Lord, the Lord is going to do with that child or that person or that situation. So the people recognize the hand of God. And 67 to 79, now Zacharias praises, this is interesting, they call this the Benedictus or Benedictus, I'm not sure how that, that word is pronounced, but it's like a benediction, okay? <laughs> And what's interesting to me was, when could Zacharias have given this benediction? When, when are benedictions given? At the conclusion of your, of your service or of the, of the church service, right? When should he have actually given this benediction? When he got the news at the temple. Instead, he came out mute. But he could have given this, I don't know if you thought of that, but I thought, wow, to, it's really sad that he didn't give this benediction at the temple at the end of his serving the Lord there. What an honor. But, well, better late than never, right? So Zacharias at this point has now, he now prophesies, and he, he says two things about two peoples, right? The first part of it is what? About what we just did up here. God has come. He's fulfilled. He has accomplished, right? And the second part is about who? John himself being who? The forerunner. And in there it is laced with 
cross-references of prophecies about a forerunner and how he has accomplished them. Isn't that awesome? So we see again, back to the author's purpose, he is showing us how these things have been fulfilled, how God's word is being fulfilled through these two records that he's giving to us. And then the last of it is in 80 sets us up to go into the next chapter where he simply tells us that John grew up until he enters his, his public ministry. So that's your outline.